If your family is like ours, you probably have as much fun giving gifts this time of year as you do getting gifts this time of year. Um, it seems like one of my favorite parts of, of Christmas is just watching um, how after preparation and shopping and purchasing and bringing a gift uh, home and wrapping it and, and waiting with anticipation to actually be there in that moment when that loved one or that friend opens that gift and seeing the, the joy, we hope, <laughs> on their face <clears throat> and the excitement about that gift that they have just received. I think typically when we think back maybe to our favorite gifts that we have ever gotten, we've ever received, it's probably a gift that's maybe connected to a relationship or a memory, because it's really all about the people, right? It's all about the relationships. It's, you know, grandma always cooked and served this particular dish in this particular uh, piece of cookware, and then now you open on Christmas morning and this exact piece of cookware, and now it's yours, and you're delighted because of all the memories that it has. Um, at other times, our favorite Christmas gifts are maybe connected to a need, Maybe something you desperately needed. I remember <clears throat> one time not long after Tara and I were married and the boys were really little and we needed brake work done on our car. And uh, I was early in ministry, pastoring and also cutting grass and cleaning out foreclosed houses to try to make ends meet. And Christmas morning we opened a, a gift which ended up being a, a financial, a cash gift uh, from someone. And it was the exact amount that we needed for the brake work. And we hadn't told anybody uh, what we needed. It was just such an incredible gift uh, from the Lord. And uh, those are wonderful memories. Those are wonderful gifts. The, the ones that are attached to sentimental value, the ones that are attached to relationships, the one that, ones that meet desperate needs. And I think most of us here, we're, we're here at a Christian worship service this morning. We realize that the most important part of Christmas is not the Christmas lights or the Christmas cookies or the Christmas carols or even the exchange of gifts, we know that ultimately Christmas is about the gift of Jesus. Like we know that ultimately Christmas is about God sending his son as a gift for us to be born into our world. We know that, right, as the famous words from Charlie Brown, right? That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. But we may not stop and actually think about how much this gift of Christmas that we have been given is, is more than just a baby who was born into our world or who was born in our, to our world to die. Like we realize, I think as Christians, most of us, that when we see a manger scene, a nativity scene, and we see a baby Jesus there, we know that it's not just that there was a baby born in Bethlehem, but we know that it's that baby who actually grows and becomes a man and lives without sin and willingly surrenders his life on the cross for the sin of all who believe. And God raises him from the dead three days later and he ascends to the Father and he's at the right hand of the Father and one day he will return. We, we know that all of that is kind of wrapped up in this gift of Jesus Christ at Christmas. But so often we stop there. You might think, well, isn't that a good place to stop? Well, it is. The gift of Christmas is precious. 
But it's precious not only because Jesus would live without sin and die on the cross and rise from the dead. And the gift of Jesus Christ at Christmas is not only precious because Jesus has accomplished salvation for all God's elect, all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. But I want you to consider this morning that as glorious as all of those realities are, they are simply a means to an end. That the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh and being born into our world is a means to an end. And Jesus living without sin and dying on the cross in the place of all who believe is a means to an end. And Jesus rising from the dead is a means to an end. The greatest gift then we could ever receive is more than just salvation and is more than just the act of reconciliation, us being reconciled back to the Father. The greatest gift ever is the gift of union with God. It's a relationship with our creator God, a relationship marked by union with God through Christ, a relationship that is marked by the presence of God, the Holy Spirit living within us. That is the greatest gift that we could ever receive. In fact, that is the purpose of all things, is that the people of God might be reconciled to God, to have a relationship with God. And so while forgiveness of sins is important and vital and necessary, it is a means to an end. The end is so that we might have a relationship with God. Forgiveness of sins is required for that relationship, but the greatest joy in the central core of the gift of Jesus at Christmas is that God is now with us. He has come to his own. He has come to his people, and that now, even as we sit here today, through the work of the Holy Spirit, God lives in his people. Emmanuel, God with us. But, as always, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see this from God's own word. So let's look at our text in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. So if you were here last week, we looked at verses 1 through 17, the genealogy of Jesus. And just to kind of summarize what we found, we saw that God, through Matthew, is showing us how Jesus is the blessed promise of the offspring of Abraham. Secondly, we saw that Jesus is the true and better king from the line of David. And third, we saw that Jesus is the faithful servant who succeeded where Israel failed. In fact, just notice how these same themes carry over as Matthew records God's message to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. The word of the Lord says this in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Okay, just pause there for a minute. 
<clears throat> notice the same themes we have seen already in the last few weeks in our Advent series. The birth of Jesus Christ. You remember Christ is shorthand for the Messiah, the promised one of God. We see also in verse 18 that Mary is betrothed to Joseph, but it's, this is before they've come together. Matthew's reminding us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this child would not be born through the natural union that comes between a man and a woman. He would be born from the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 18. And her husband, verse 19, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, just notice the same themes we've heard the last couple of weeks. An angel messenger coming with a divine message from God to communicate this to Joseph. Notice he doesn't just merely say Joseph. He says Joseph, son of David. We saw last week why that's so significant, speaking of Jesus' royalty. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for or because he will save his people from their sins. Now that's important. You'll remember back a few weeks ago we looked at the theme of the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. So God, again, just to repeat what we've looked at the last couple of weeks, is making a statement even in the name of this child. But now this angel messenger to Joseph kind of pulls the curtain back a little bit more to reveal more. We see how Yahweh will save Again, verse 21, for he will save his people, how? From their sins. So Jesus will be God's salvation because Jesus will save his people from their sins. That's the kind of saving that Jesus will do and Jesus has done. But this is the point at which we sometimes stop. Like we're grateful that God sent Jesus into our world to save us from our sin. We're grateful for the cross and from the empty tomb. But we think that that's all. But that's not all. The cross and the empty tomb, again, are a means to an end. The end is union with God. And this is exactly what we read if we read on in verse 22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken <clears throat> by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So as a quick aside, no extra charge for this, just as a quick aside, I think it's amazing how God, through Matthew, tells us that when the Old Testament prophets wrote and spoke, it was the Lord speaking. Now that's not the main point of verse 22, but that's an important point. From verse 22, lest we think that divine inspiration and that the, the God speaking through the prophets is just an invention of modern conservative biblical scholars. No, 
the angelic message uh, to Matthew ends, and then Matthew lets us know through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who's inspiring him to write that all of this is taking place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, specifically here through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes what Isaiah says and writes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So the main point of verse 22 is that Jesus has come as the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He came born of a virgin, and his name is called Emmanuel. Now at this point, some of you may be thinking, okay, wait, time out. We've made a really big deal over the last several weeks about his name being called Jesus. Yahweh saves. So now you're saying his name is called Emmanuel? Like what, what's, what's up with that? Well, you would be exactly right that we've made a big deal about Jesus being the name of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But here, Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, to tell us about the role that Jesus would play. And the role that Jesus will play is so intertwined with Jesus' identity that that role becomes a part of his name, Emmanuel, God with us. <clears throat> so to, to give you a, a more modern day example of this sort of thing, um, up until recently, if we had been in conversation and you had mentioned something about the queen, I would have assumed you were referring to Queen Elizabeth. Even though Elizabeth was her name and queen simply represented her title, it represented a role that she played. But that role that she played was so intertwined with her identity that it really was like her name and in fact was part of her name. And so here we see, yes, Jesus is the name of the second person of the Trinity, Yahweh saves but we also see that his other name is Emmanuel, which describes his mission. It describes his purpose. It describes his role. He is God with us. Yahweh does save, and he comes to save through Jesus. Yes, the Jesus who is God in the flesh. The God who comes near, who doesn't stay far off, who isn't out there, who isn't distant, but who puts on skin and flesh and bones and enters our world into a baby as God to be with us. Now again, the greatest gift we could ever receive, no matter what, like you think about the best gift you ever wanted. Ever, the best gift you ever dreamed of. Like, so when I was a kid, it was, you know, the JCPenney catalog was a thing. If you're like under 30, you have no idea what we're talking about. But there was a store that was called JCPenney, and they used to have a catalog they put out at Christmas time. And as a kid, you would go through and you would like dog ear the pages that had the things that you loved. And there was a company called Hutch that made like kid football uniforms. And I remember just looking at that and circling that, like, 
that would be the greatest thing if I got, you know, the uniform with like one bar down here and this little flimsy plastic helmet and the shoulder pads that always stuck out in weird shape. But if you had one of those, you were, it was the coolest thing. But no matter what you think of, when you think of the greatest gift that you could ever possibly have, the reality is that pales dramatically in comparison to the ultimate best gift you could ever have, which is union with God, a relationship with God himself. Like to be known by and to know the God who made us and sustains us and sustains all things is the greatest gift ever. To put it another way, God is the goal. The goal of our lives and wonder of wonders at Christmas, God comes to us, although we are helpless to go to him. Like left on our own, we don't desire God. We love the darkness. We hate, hate the light. We hate the things of God. And God enters our world still as a baby born in Bethlehem. He comes near to us when we were incapable of drawing near to him. And this is the pattern of all of human history. All of human history can be summed up in God's gracious work to rescue and to be with his people. I mean, to put it another way, Emmanuel, which means God with us, has been God's plan all along. Matthew is clear here in verse 22 that the birth of Jesus does not appear on the scene as a last-minute script adjustment. Like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. Okay, let me rewrite the script a little bit. Jesus' birth was not the product of God kind of reading the devil's coverage and going audible and changing the play. Like, now I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make an end run around the enemy's plan. I'm going to send my own son. I'm going to send God in the flesh to enter the world. No. Emmanuel, God with us, has been God's plan all along. Jesus' birth was plan A, not plan B. It was designed by God. In fact, in passages like 2 Timothy 1 and Acts 2 and Ephesians 3, we see that Jesus' birth and death and resurrection was the plot line around which all of human history was written. So when we come to Matthew 1.22 and we read, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, we shouldn't be surprised. So to show you what I mean, I want to spend the rest of our time together taking you on a, on a little journey. You don't have to get up, you don't have to move around, but we're going to go on a little journey through time, through history And I want to stop at a few different places and briefly point out how God with us, Emmanuel, God living with his people, was the plan all along. So our first stop is, understandably, the garden. The Garden of Eden was a special place created by God where his people would live In fact, the book of Genesis tells us about this garden, this perfect place for Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. But the best part, the very best part about the Garden of Eden was not the absence of suffering or the absence of pain or the absence of sin, 
or the absence of anxiety, the best part of the garden, the best part of Adam and Eve's existence was their unhindered, fully transparent, completely secure relationship with God himself. In Genesis chapter 1-2, we read of God walking and talking with Adam and Eve, with God being with them and them being with God. We see evidence of the kind of relationship that we in our world right now could only dream of. Like Adam and Eve were completely known, and yet they were fully loved and totally secure. If this was the best part of Eden, God living with, dwelling with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And yet we know tragically what happened next. Rather than honoring God as God, Adam and Eve instead chose autonomy from God. They chose independence from God. They chose to try to define the terms of their relationship with God on their own. They, chose to, they sought to rule rather than submit to God. They sought to redefine right and wrong and good and evil according to their own desires and their own beliefs instead of being formed by that which God had said. And the results were horrific. In fact, keep your finger in Matthew chapter 1, turn to the right, to Romans chapter 8, because I want you to see this in your own Bible this morning. It's always easier to see it, because then you can return there later throughout the week. Every sickness, every disease, every hurricane, every storm, all forms of sadness and fear and anxiety and stress and hurt and worry became a reality because of sin. Now, this does not mean that all sickness and all disease are the direct consequences of personal sin. It means that all suffering and dysfunction are the result of sin, sometimes directly related to personal sin, but always, always connected to the rebellion of a humanity against God. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, We read that God subjected the creation to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So God subjected the world, including humans, to the catastrophic consequences of sin, but he did so in hope. What's that hope? Well, verse 21, Romans 8 tells us, The hope is that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when Adam and Eve chose rebellion against God, chose to sin against God, and reap the consequences of that sin, God allowed those consequences. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, we read about God cursing creation. God subjecting creation to the consequences of sin. But he does so, Paul tells us in Romans 8, in hope. He doesn't doesn't do so out of anger. He doesn't do so just uh, in vindictiveness. He does so in hope. In hope that creation will be set free from its bondage to sin. Set free to enjoy the glory of the children of God. And so how can guilty sinners like us be set free from our bondage 
to sin and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God? How can we be freed from sin and the consequences of sin and the wages of sin? Well, God's Spirit, again, through Paul, tells us, still in Romans chapter 8, just earlier on in Romans 8. In fact, those who would have had this letter read to them would have already known the answer to that question, like how, how are we redeemed, how are we set free from our bondage to sin, because Paul already covered that in chapter 8, verses 1 and 4. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are united to Christ Jesus. How does that, how does that happen? Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the law of God that we have broken and trespassed and rightly deserve punishment as a part of, we are now set free from that law by the law of the spirit of life. Through the life of Jesus, the full obedience of Jesus has set us free from the punishment we rightly deserve from our sin, from our law-breaking. For God, verse 3, has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law couldn't save. The law could never save. The law was never designed to save. It was meant to reveal our need. It was meant to be an x-ray to show us how bad we really are. So that God, verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So the work of Jesus who was perfectly righteous, who perfectly fulfilled the law of God, who succeeded where we failed. It is that same Jesus who died on the cross as a penalty for our sin. So how are we made right? How are we released from the penalty of our sin? How are we released from the burden of our sin? We are released through the work of Jesus Christ who fulfilled what we should have done but couldn't who has now given us his spirit. And as we walk by his spirit, we're not bound by the law any longer. Even in our helpless state, God had planned all along to provide freedom from sin and reconciliation to God. Like the incarnation, which is simply a big word that just means God taking on flesh as Jesus. The incarnation was all about restoring what was lost in the garden, which is God with us. So, let's get back in the the bus, and we're going to move on from the garden. The second place I want us to, to stop in our journey through history for a moment is at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a a sacred tent-like structure that was designed with precision by God himself. It was built according to the exact specifications that God gave to Moses. And the tabernacle was to be a place of worship as the people would gather together and would stand before God and would speak of his character and would speak of his works. But maybe most importantly, the tabernacle was a place where God's glory symbolically lived. 
In fact, this is one of the reasons that the tabernacle was to be set up in the middle of Israel's camp. Like that had less to do with logistical functionality and had everything to do with symbolism. God dwelling in the very middle of his people, at the center of their world, at the center of their lives. But there's a problem. Because this is after Genesis chapter 3 and the fall into sin. And so how does a holy, sinless, perfect God live in the middle of unholy, sinful, imperfect people? The answer is, he requires his people to be cleansed. The only way that God's presence can dwell among his people is for his people to be cleansed from their sin. To have their sin covered. And how does one have their sins covered? Answer, by fulfilling the punishment required for that sin. And the Bible is really clear that the punishment for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. God told Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit that I'm telling you not to eat of, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And while Adam and Eve did not have an immediate physical death, they had an immediate spiritual death, an immediate separation from the presence of God. The greatest gift ever was lost in that moment. And so the tabernacle was not only a place of worship, it became a place of sacrifice as the people would bring animals to be killed, demonstrating that sin equals death. It was the place people would come to have their sin covered by the blood of a dead animal and to have their lives washed by the ceremonial washing away of sin. Like this was the only way that God could live among his people. And yet even in the tabernacle, God was somewhat removed. Like yes, his presence lived in the tabernacle symbolically, but only in a special place called the Holy of Holies. And this was a sacred room, inner room, inside the outer room that was inside the courtyard. And that special place was only accessible by the high priest and only once a year and only after every detail and every arrangement had been made. In other words, God's holiness was so great that the common believer could not access the presence of the Lord. Like even here, God was teaching his people something important. He was teaching them that he is holy and we are not. And apart from him, we have no access to God at all. Once again, God's presence all along has been to dwell with and to live among his people for their good. And this relationship was lost in the garden and it was partially restored in the tabernacle, but not fully. I mean, after all, not all the people had access to the presence of God. They couldn't enjoy the full reconciliation with God because the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews tells us, only provided a partial and temporary covering for sin. It did not fully cleanse for all time sin. Which is why the the truth of Galatians 4.4 is so incredibly good. When the fullness of time had come, 
long after the garden, long after the tabernacle and then the temple, long after Israel failed and went into exile, God sent forth his son. God sent. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive not merely covering for our sin and not even merely cleansing of our sin. And I don't use merely meaning small. I just mean not, not ultimate. Right? The, the summit of the glory of God's work in Jesus and God's work in the gospel, the summit of that glory is not just having our sins cleansed. And it's not just in being brought to God, but it's in having right relationship with God. To be with God. For God to be with us. And so when the time was right, according to God's infinite wisdom, he sent his son into the world. And Jesus was born, born into our world of law-keeping and law-breaking. Born perfect, born to live without sin, born to be the spotless sacrifice for sin, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, born to redeem, born to purchase the salvation of all who believe, born to make us sons and daughters of God. Born that we might have a relationship with the God who made us. You see, once again, God's plan all along was not merely saving people from their sin. His plan was to live among his people. And the gift of sins paid in full is the access that grants us a reconciled relationship with our holy and loving Father. So that we today who are sitting here and trusting in Jesus Christ have confidence to come before God boldly. Think about that. The God who created all things, right? They're like the height of scientific knowledge right now to look out into the universe can't begin to plumb the depths of all that is out there. And God speaks and it all exists. And the the intricacies of microbiology, of seeking to understand organisms at their most basic level, has not yet been plumbed to its fullest depths. Scientists are continuing to discover more, oh, well, we didn't, we didn't think we could see into that, right? Like with Darwin, it was like the cell, right? Card, called Darwin's black box. Like the cell is the basic structure. There, there's nothing more basic than the cell. And then lo and behold, we discover that we can actually see inside the cell. And there's complexity and there's design and there's arrangement and there's some sort of masterful blueprint for how everything works. And now we can see inside the stuff that's inside the cell. And then we can see the stuff inside the stuff that's inside the stuff that's inside that's inside the cell, right? And it just keeps going. And we, we can't plumb the depths. And God's like, yeah, I just said, let it be, and it was. And that's the God that beckons us and welcomes us into his presence. That's the God that a few moments ago we were singing to with our voices. 
that we come to that's given us his word, that's given us his spirit to be God with us. And we can have confidence to come before God and to pray and to worship and to cry out to him in joy and to groan before him in lament. Why? Because we have a great high priest, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, who passed through the heavens and came into our world to be near us. And then to give us his spirit, to live inside all who believe, so that Emmanuel is just as true now as it was to Jesus' disciples who walked and talked. In fact, we could argue more true because we have his Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, it's better for you that I go, that I might send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to live in you. That is the greatest gift. Emmanuel. Think about that. God's presence lives in you, Christian. But there's one more place I want us to go on our, on our tour this morning, and it's not a historical place, it's a, it's a futuristic place, and that is the new creation. As Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he ministered in Judea and Samaria, and he was crucified and rose again outside Jerusalem, and then he ascended back to the Father, and he left his Holy Spirit to be Emmanuel, God with us. But that is not the end of the story. Because Christians, we don't just look back, we also look ahead. And here in a few moments, when we take the Lord's Supper together, it's about declaring the work of the Lord, not only what he's done in the past, but it's declaring that Jesus Christ will return, just as he promised. That one day, just as sure as we are sitting here, God will send his son back to our world. And Jesus will descend from the clouds with a shout and the sound of trumpets, And every eye will see and every ear will hear him. And every believer who has died, Jesus will bring back with him. And after judging the world, he will make a new creation. Just look look with me the way the Holy Spirit records this future reality for us from Revelation chapter 21. This is glorious. This is what is to be. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Let's pause. Everything we've been talking about this morning, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Like that is the eternal existence, church, that we long for, that we have to look forward to. And God will create a new place, an eternal place for his people to live with him, a better Garden of Eden, because we won't even have the possibility of sin. A place where God will be Emmanuel in all of its fullness, God with us. Christian, this is our most glorious inheritance. 
And the suffering and the sorrow and the sadness around us, the hurt around us, the pain around us makes us long all the more for that day. Even yesterday as we so many gathered right here in this very place and a little Sarah's casket was placed right here, we mourned as family and friends with Jonathan and Alina the, the loss of their little two-year-old daughter. And yet the thread that ran even through our mourning, we are right to mourn. But the thread that ran through that mourning is that this is not the end. This is not the end. Sarah is alive and all those who are in Christ are alive for eternity. And that one day, Jesus will return, and death will be no more, and suffering will be no more. And the primary glory, friends, the primary glory of the new heavens and the new earth will not be the sinless existence. Like That'll be glorious, but that is not the primary glory of heaven. And the primary glory of the new heavens and the new earth will not be a painless existence or a sorrow-free existence or an anxiety-free existence. The primary glory of the new heavens and the new earth will be God with us in all of its glory, in all of its fullness, the presence of the one who knows us best and loves us most. And this is why the baby in the manger is so much more than sentimentalism. It is the sure and steady evidence of God's forgiving grace. Of God not being thwarted by our sin, but accomplishing the mission of being with his people. Jesus Christ is the evidence then of God's longing to be with his people, that God does not merely tolerate you. Even as a Christian, sometimes we just think, I think God just tolerates us. Like he saved us, he did this work for us, and he just tolerates us now like, I did all this for you, and this is the thanks I get. No, friend, he loves you. Bethlehem is exhibit A of the fact that he loves you, that he desires a relationship so much that he provided his son to be born, to take on human flesh, to humble himself, to set aside the privileges of his divinity, and to be born as a human, to live and to die and to rise from the dead so that we might be united, so that we may have a relationship with him. Like how deep the Father's love for us. And how vast beyond all measures that he would take his only son to make wretches like you and me his treasure. His treasure. Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to celebrate that now by receiving the Lord's Supper together. I've invited a few friends to help serve the elements. We should be reminded as we take the bread that it represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ that was broken for us. And as we take the fruit of the vine, we should be reminded that 
It represents the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the new covenant, a blood more superior to the blood of bulls and goats and lambs because it is a perfect, eternal blood that was shed for us so that we might be saved. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's really, it's really a word picture, it's symbolic imagery of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder that Jesus Christ is alive today. And it's a reminder that we who trust in Jesus Christ have been brought into the same fellowship. It's the reason we do the Lord's Supper all together as a church. As we so often say, it's a reason we don't just kind of in our homes on a Thursday night like, hey, I think our family, we're going to do the Lord's Supper tonight. We do it together because it adds extra meaning, extra symbolism when we look around and we are reminded that this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has purchased by his blood. So if you're here this morning and you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sin and are seeking to follow the Lord Jesus, you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead for your sin. You're seeking to walk with him faithfully. You are welcome to the table. You are welcome to receive the elements as they come by. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're here this morning and you're living in unrepentant sin, say, you know what, I've got a sin area in my life I'm just, I'm not willing to repent of, I'm not willing to let go of, I'm not willing to, to, to honestly seek forgiveness from the Lord for. We would just ask that you let the elements go by rather than to receive them in what the Bible calls an unworthy manner. We wouldn't want that for you or the consequences that the Bible says come with that. But if that is you this morning, then we would just encourage you before you leave today to seek out myself or anyone that you saw on the platform this morning. We would love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. Love to try to answer any questions you might have. But if you're here and you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome to receive the elements as they come by. Matt and the team are going to lead us in a song and you're welcome to sing along. You're welcome just to sit quietly and reflect or to pray. And then after we've sung, after we've all received the elements, I'll come back and I'll lead us to take them uh, all together. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. God with us as a sure sign of your desire to be with your people even amid our failures, even amid our fears, even amid our shortcomings, that you don't merely tolerate us, but that you actually love us. Father, thank you that you were not stopped by our sin. You were not stopped by the work of the enemy. But as you always do, you fully accomplish your purposes. And we know that you're still working out all of human history to accomplish your will. The final chapter has not come yet. It will come when we see at last your glorious son face to face. And so we long for that. I pray that we would reflect upon his sacrifice now for us, a sacrifice that makes all of this possible. In Jesus' name.